Hello everyone, this is Dre from Taste of Forbidden Fruit. Today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Kamar Bradford. Been waiting for a while to get him on, and I finally have him. This is the first installment of a three-part series. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and thanks for listening. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. As promised, I have a very special guest, Mr. Kamar Bradford. We've been trying to connect for quite a while. It's been about three, four months, maybe more. And I'm finally able to get him on. I'm very excited because he has so much to say, so much to offer. And uh, I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm just going to introduce him to you and let you see for yourself. So welcome to the show, Mr. Kamar Bradford. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. It's, yeah, it's, it's been a work in progress, but uh, just to, to get go for uh, my my introduction, I operate um, well. In short, like I operate an art gallery uh, called Brokers Building Art Gallery. It was uh, it's it's a, a nonprofit that I created to to save a, a community that was threatened by gentrification. That um, a small art community that used to be in downtown. I, I kind of came upon my situation because I, I've I've been a, a practitioner of the arts for a very long time, uh, and I was able to to find some new applications and things for that um, as I went back to grad school to study counseling, kind of following the footsteps of my parents. Uh, initially, I started out in the arts, uh, studying Japanese language and art, like you know, being kind of a a, a pop culture humanities kid, uh, and then. I went into grad school for master's in rehabilitation counseling, master's of science in rehabilitation counseling, which focuses on helping people with different with disabilities, you know, whether they be psychiatric or cognitive or physical disabilities, tap into their their strengths uh, and their talents and, and find a motivation uh, in order to accomplish vocational rehabilitation, which essentially is, you know, career change. Um, or, or finding the other things that we can do uh, and have a passion for, say, like when our when our, our body changes or when we have certain limitations. It really inspired me in my art practice. So now I kind of have a, also a private practice as well that focuses especially on helping men tap into that talent and to open up and to kind of put down our barriers uh, in order to look how we can use our artistic expression in a way that that benefits us is is a in a holistic developmental sort of way um and a lot of things I, I i tend to focus on my research uh tends to be uh gender uh uh gender toxicity um the different types of masculinity that that you know that, that we have is choices and in, in ways we can express ourselves uh and then also kind of looking at the the freedom of speech sexual expression, art expression sort of themes that are always a challenge, but written into the the First Amendment for us to be able to to dabble in, unlike many other countries and societies. Hmm. With all of that in mind, what would you say is some of the challenges that you come across in what you do? I think, and, and because, well, one of the, one of the, the unique things is me dabbling in, in all these things over the years, uh, has put me at my career in equal employment opportunity, which literally looks at 
laws that reinforce diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think the biggest challenge I find um, is the amount of implicit association and implicit bias that we have on all fronts of every characteristic that we have. We have assumptions about race, about sex, about gender, about class, about religion, and essentially the there's an idea uh, that's been well established uh, in sociology called intersectionality, which looks at when characteristics intersect and what those interactions are. And I think the biggest challenge I find is we have a lot of biases that interact with each other, almost kind of give root to, to new attitudes that we kind of have to battle, um, which keeps our society pretty dynamic, I think. <laughs> Do you think these are the the beginnings of the, the labels and the stereotypes? Yeah, science I, I, I think so. I, I think the, especially as a linguist, I think one of the, the key areas that we have difficulty with is that labels, labels, are helpful. Labels exist so we can address and communicate about certain things that we we face in society, in our personal lives. However, I think once it gets the stereotyping, that's when we kind of like get lost in the process. A label is just like a word, like any word you find in the dictionary. But the key thing is when we think about a dictionary, like a true unabridged dictionary, there's multiple definitions under each word. Mm -hmm. However, the stereotyping problem is that we want to narrow it down only to one of the definitions in the most narrowest sense of the word, not understanding that the word means all those thoughts at the same time. It, it, it contains all those concepts at the same time. Very well put. Well, that's a good lead in into labels because there are some labels out that personally I have problems understanding sometimes because there are some terms out there that seem to kind of cross mm -hmm. in their explanation. And yeah. I, yeah. And so <clears throat> I was listening to something on YouTube show and mm. a transgender a woman said, the best thing to do is just to ask, you know, oh, yeah. what, how do you identify? Do you, do you agree with, if you don't know, I mean, do you agree with that or, because in some, for some people like me, it, it's kind of, it sounds like insulting or rude, right. but maybe that is the best way to come to understand a person's, right. you know, gender, because that's the social construct right. as opposed to sex, which is, you know, what you're born as, which is another thing I didn't know until I really yeah. actually met you and I researched it yeah. and I was telling someone else about that, you know, that maybe the best thing to do if you're confused instead of labeling or whatever is just to ask the person just to ask yeah and i think that's the key thing is like we have such a harsh society assuming and like it kind of determines class off of like what people should know or what they shouldn't know and their intelligence and things like that essentially one of the biggest terms that comes out of the disability community is ableism mm -hmm. um where you're assuming that someone should be able to do certain things in an emotional or an intelligence or a physical sense, not realizing like we all have different sort of capacities. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think when it comes to the labels that are there, um, there's a lot of words out there and, and, and we kind of have, we front like we know, but you know, if we don't ask and if we don't take the time to look things up in Wikipedia or a dictionary or an encyclopedia, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to be at a loss. Um, and we're moving too fast to understand that 
it's okay to move slow and that the ambiguity uh, is something that we take our time with and we work through, but you can't rush through it. Like, you know, it takes being thoughtful and considerate to get all the details that are important. Otherwise we, we move too fast and then, you know, it's the saying fools rush in, then we, we end up dealing with consequences that we may not be ready for. LGBTQIA. There's yes. one, the, there's, I understand the first five. Yeah. <laughs> Six and seven, I have a little, you know, problems with. Right. So uh, LGBTQIA, lesbian, bisexual, well, LG is always, letters are insane, the amount of acronyms that we have. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, mm-hmm. queer, uh, intersexual and asexual, okay. and then there's a bunch of other things that don't even like that are that you could you could add on to the end of that. So of yeah. course, like lesbian focuses more on women who are attracted to women, and that can include you know trans women who are attracted to women or, or vice versa. Uh, then gay focuses especially on men who are attracted to men, and that could include trans men as well. Then trans that one mainly applies to and it can include both transgender and transsexual but someone who has crossed over from being one cisgender self to being the other gender and cisgender that's a tricky one essentially when you hear the term cisgender that just means that the person's outer um gender and sexual appearance matches so you know someone's born as a male and they live as a male uh, or they're born as a female and they live as a female and once we and then one of the the ones that's the trickiest one that's most overlooked and actually a a population that faces the most discrimination even at a governmental level where it's they they there's a lot of injustice that we're unaware of are people who are intersex and intersex means they're 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 born with um organs that don't match the the assumption or the stereotype so you know of course you have male female and chromosomally uh, like you have xx for female and xy for male when you look at our chromosomes but when you're working with people who are intersex they may have things that don't necessarily match that logic And, and they're naturally occurring so they're not trans they're you know they're their natural selves but we have a system that's binary that doesn't comprehend that so even when we say cisgender you can have someone who is cisgender intersex because intersex is a true sort of neutral in a way between although you have different configurations uh, of how someone's born but like they're absolutely natural people and then of course you get to q which is queer which is almost like a, a, a very kind of political somewhat political um standpoint which you know people create their own gender in some ways in that process Mm -hmm. and and then you also have asexual uh which is usually an identity that doesn't really acknowledge sexuality It, it pushes more towards being just a neutral in all things um where you cannot necessarily determine you know whether it's whether whether the person's expression gender expression is male or female and and that and like that's 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 a unique subset in itself so and there's 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 a lot to research and for me like i you know i i'm as as a cisgender bisexual black male 
it's you know I, I I've done a lot of work <laughs> to get to the point of being able to comprehend a lot of these things um, and a lot of these ideas and to accept them and to embrace them um, you know at my own at my own pace but you know it's 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 a, it's an area of study uh, and it's that it's super deep and then each person who's in that particular sort of bracket within like the LGBTQIA community, which is always awkward that we call it community because sometimes certain people within certain situations are very anti or they have a lot of difficulty with other people who are within that same bracket. So you may have gays that don't always get along with lesbians, you may not always get along with trans, you may not necessarily understand uh, queer or intersexual or asexual. But I think for the purpose of sociology is the reason why we we get these acronyms so that way we can better look at how do we meet the needs for like essentially probably the best term for all of it is non-binary how do we meet the the needs for the non-binary right community? right that's what i've heard people say so the best and i thing think that's the safest one i think when people see when people see when people see a bunch of letters mm -hmm. and it's difficult because you know me working in equal employment opportunity it, that also applies to ethnic groups as well so we right. have bipoc <laughs> which Jeez. is a uh, black, uh, indigenous person of color. Um, then there's in Hopi, which is, um, I want to say native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. Um, then there's Ian, which is, uh, Alaskan was it American Indian or Alaskan native. And then there's even a newer term coming up for people out of the middle East because they don't feel that they're properly identified in the category of Asian, mm -hmm. uh, which is Mina, which is middle Eastern, uh, uh, North African. Wow. So, you know, we, sometimes you have people who say, oh yeah, the whole gender thing's alphabet soup, but technically everything's alphabet soup. So you right. can't really just kind of, I, I think the thing is our lazy thinking wants to make something simple. Um, or just not, not a lazy thing, but our, our efficiency in our minds want to make things simple, but we really have to study what it is and find the right term before we simplify it, uh, without looking biased or derogatory in the process. I think the former, what you said is very true in terms of lazy thinking there. There's a lot of that out there and that's dangerous because it leads to a lot of this labeling stereotyping and right, the non-binary, right. the non-binary point I think is the, the best one. That's the one I hear the most, which to me yeah. is just, you ask, and, you know, and research and then right. before you make assumptions and, and judgments and things and, and based right. on the, the knowledge that Kamar just dropped. Now you can see why I was waiting to have him on here because <laughs> he dropped some science there that I would it would have taken me a year to share that with all of you out there. So stay tuned because we're just getting started and we're going to start segment two in just a moment. We'll be right back. All right. Hey, guys, it's Callie. I'm so excited to tell you about the FenFun Ultra Booster. It's honestly my favorite vibrator. It's quiet, it's small, and it's perfect for clit, vaginal, and anal play. Its sleek design makes it easy to hold. It also has 20 functions and the container doubles as a charging station. Ladies, the very best part is it's waterproof, so you can play in the shower. It comes in four fun colors, pink, purple, blue, and black. It retails for $69.99 and is worth every penny. You can pick it up in any of our five store locations. Hope to see you soon. All 
All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. We have Mr. Kamar Bradford here educating all of us. And for this segment, we're going to get into something that I, a topic I didn't even know about, uh, which it could be a lot of topics when it comes to Kamar, because he knows a lot of things that I don't in regard to these things. But it's called sexual ableism. And I don't know if you were familiar with it, but I certainly was not familiar with it. But thankfully, we have Kamar here to help us understand it. And even for those who may understand a little bit, maybe can give you a greater insight into it and give us some examples of it in, in practice. So, Kamar, what exactly is sexual ableism? So sexual ableism, and I, I, I would not say that I'm the one who ever coined the phrase, but when I was in the disability studies program, uh, one of the focuses was uh, looking at some of the, the sexual challenges that people will have, you know, having a disability. And in my mind, it kind of clicked that, you know, essentially when people talk about discrimination against people with disabilities, um, oftentimes out of that community, the term ableism has come up, which is the bias against someone who has a disability on a cognitive, a psychiatric or emotional um, or uh, a physical level. And, and one of the things that I started to put together in my mind is that there's, a, there's also, that also applies just to the, the entire area of sexuality and gender research as well. We assume certain things in our process of value. We, we value and we make assumptions on the value of others regarding their sexuality and their sexual expression there's a thing in many of the societies that we come from that doesn't really give a universal rights approach to people meeting their sexual needs or their emotional, like, uh, like intimacy needs and, and things like that. Although when you do look at psychology and especially Maslow's needs hierarchy, Abraham Maslow was the president of the American uh, Psychological Association for, for a very long time uh, up until kind of the 70s, 80s. Um, and even in, in his, his um, needs hierarchy hypothesis that he put forward, which is kind of the bread and butter for even when you look at the childcare uh, industry, uh, anyone who works with children has to be trained in understanding Maslow's needs hierarchy, mm-hmm. which essentially just says that we have a variety of needs that also includes, you know, touch and belonging uh, and intimacy and things like that. Although it's a truth, almost a universal truth that people need intimacy and sexuality and, and, and gender expression, we make assumptions and we almost make a privileged process out of, you know, who gets to be the macho person, who gets to be the, the feminine person who uh, is valid because they have children or because they don't have children. And all that contributes to essentially uh, the idea of sexual ableism. We are judging each other's, how do you say, worth or other, each other's sexual worth and value in ways that can be worth and value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in ways that are, are very unfair. Right. Um, so, you know, if people can have sex or if people can have intimacy, sometimes it's because of, you know, they have a capacity for it, but it, just because you have a capacity for it doesn't mean that the other people don't deserve that. So if you look at certain, you know, disabilities that are out there, uh, sometimes they lend themselves to some of the attitudes that we see and identities that we see, you say like, you know, asexual um, or another one is aromantic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw that one. I didn't, I didn't get that. 
Some of these right. terms, I just, I, it blows right. my mind, yeah. And, and for me, like, I, I identify with some of them. So, like, aromantic is one I definitely identify with. And aromantic is an orientation where things like holding hands and walking on the beach mm-hmm. or, like, candlelit dinners just doesn't do anything for, for certain people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm one of those types. Like, you know, I, I totally understand sex. I understand the, the technicality of it. It's great. It's fun. It's almost like a physical, you know, athletic activity in some ways for me. Like there's, there's, I, I there, there, it feels just healthy and good for my body, but at the same time, people will, you've always seen where you have like the person who are like, well, if we just had sex so that, that means we must be in love. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Right. There's this equation of romance that's there or either you have people who are, who may be asexual, um, who, you know, they, can feel all these sorts of romantic things, but they really, they never really need, nor do they really want a sexual component to it. So like, you know, maybe like the thing that fulfills their intimacy needs is just, you know, holding hands or just having romantic dinners, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but the ableism in our minds means whatever we think fits for us, we assume fits for other people. And, and, and that, that affects our industry. So when people look at uh, adult film or they look at erotica or they look at like hug therapy or massage, they may see them as frivolous things, things that aren't modest, things that go against whatever religious system that they believe in. Not understanding that, you know, if you have someone who has quadriplegia and they can't use any of their limbs, sometimes for them to have access of touch or intimacy besides being handled by nurses and physicians all the time, which is very objectifying, is perhaps a, a sexual surrogate partner or um, having a service where they they can have that, that sort of interaction. Or, or for people who just can't be around others in a social manner, sometimes the, the erotica or the adult film and performance is something that can help them meet their needs mm-hmm. so they can get out that expression and then be cool to be around other people. But we assume that, you know, if it's not in some sort of cisgender, heterosexual, heteronormative, you know, ordained under the church or the mosque or the synagogue, if it's not in that context, then we assume that it's not valid not understanding other people have other orientations, other life situations, disabilities that are going on that make it really difficult, if not impossible, to have that same goal. Now, I might get in trouble for saying this with, you know, other cisgender males, if they even know what that is or identify as, but right, it sounds like a lot of the things we talk about and the issues that we have if you look at it as a, a sexual food chain, it seems like the ones that are at the top that, that are praying or that negatively affect all the, one, the ones below them is the heterosexual male, cisgender male. Is that true? In many ways it is. Uh, because the thing is when we look at, oftentimes when people address the patriarchy, they're mm-hmm. addressing that system that was established in, in this country, in our context, the WASP patriarchy that was established through white Anglo-Saxon males who had a line that came from, you know, King George, (laughs) who was a God King. So, you know, when you look at households that are Protestant, they still have that same sort of format all the time. So the, the male is the Lord of the house. They're the one who has the, the, the Supreme rule. They're the breadwinner, et cetera. And then that, that pattern imitates itself even in, 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 in Islamic houses and in, in Jewish houses 
And, you know, when we have our ethical orientation and we assume it's that way or the highway, then we end up forcing that on everyone else, you know, that, you know, that the male figure has to be the God figure. Um, And that's, that can be damaging to, to, to people who are coming from cultures that don't align to that. And then for, and the thing is, even when you look at from an EEO standpoint, gender, sex, class, disability are all cultural areas in themselves in a proper study of what culture is, not assuming that it has to be geographically tied. You know, it's funny. I was watching another show on YouTube and mm. it was it was basically uh, rappers, black male rappers, and they have right. a, a show and they talk about an array of different topics and they're in New York. So if you think about those, you have rapper, you have black, you have right. New York. So you can already in, in your mind imagine the their their identification or their definition of what a, a man is, right? Right. Which right. It, he was saying is the gift and the curse because it's almost like it is like a god figure. It, and the thing is, is that none of us are god figures, so everyone's going to fall right. short. But the perception, everyone's gonna fall yes, short. and the perception is like with a male, you have to make all the money, you have to be the you know the provider you never ask for help you know you you never have any issues or problems and he was saying that honestly being a man is knowing when you need help and knowing saying you know what i don't have all the answers and i do need help with this situation and i do need some advice as far as what i should do in terms of what's best for us or a decision that i need to make that will not only affect me but affect a group and And even yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm just saying it, it's yeah. it's it's almost like being a man, you it's it's you it's you're set up to fail because you you don't have all the answers. It's almost like, you know, you don't even incorporate the ideas or input of others. You, you have right. the the audacity to think right. that you have all the answers right. and no one does. You know, that's the man box. That's that's right. the and that's the thing is when I when I mentioned the term of gender toxicity, it's when your performance of gender is so overperformed that it damages you, that mm-hmm. it damages other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, essentially, uh, according to, you know, Judith Butler, who is, you know, one of the lead um, researchers on gender, uh, she put forth uh, that, you know, gender is performative. Like it, it, if, if even like in language, like if it's not said, then there is no gender there. Mm-hmm. So you have to perform. There's a, creative artistic process and the interpretation the expression of that um but you know if for men especially for black men and it's i think it's difficult especially for us because we're in a system that doesn't reflect us and a lot of us have a void to what was there before like we're unaware even even black men coming out of the african continent things are so colonized by christianity or islam or other you know foreign concepts um, that, you know, the, the, the pre-colonial, pre-religious societies um, that were maternalistic, that revolved around a matriarchy, a lot of people are unfamiliar with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that means we end up getting put into uh, a man gender jacket that's projected on us from other people who come from cultural backgrounds that are totally different from us. Mm-hmm. And really, it it, it it becomes a straitjacket, and that's essentially what the problem is. Okay. You know, 
there can be flexibility, there can be a variety of different masculinities that are all valid. But if someone's thinking, well, I have to be the absolute provider at all times and dominating all these things, like, you know, th you get lost in that. Right. And a lot of people get hurt in that. And you get domestic violence and you get like human trafficking and, and, and you get alcoholism and suicide. And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for men's health uh, and, and, and for positive, you know, masculinity. Yes. And, and understanding like there's there's it doesn't have to be a straitjacket. There's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of healthy expression. There's a lot of peace you can find in the process of of exploring your masculinity and sharing it. And, and especially like during a, a month like this, November, which is Movember, which is you have the Movember Foundation that advocates for men's health and, and prostate cancer awareness. Mm. I think it's crucial, especially for us black males, to put that straitjacket down and understand, like, even just the masculinity concept that we're raised with in societies where we're oppressed doesn't apply to us. Right. It totally doesn't apply to us, whether it's Islamic ideas on masculinity or Christian ideas or Jewish ideas or just European ideas. Those are all different types that are valid within their own you know specific context mm -hmm. but we have a lot more freedom and then when we start looking at different african ideals on gender sometimes we find even more freedom which is even greater yeah. uh and and like you know and even you think about indigenous african people and and the different processes of, of body decoration and, and adornment and things like that that's what we're that's what we evolved from and we need to allow ourselves to have that to to be the men who we are you know very well said. I heard you you mentioned gender toxicity, which when I first mm -hmm. met you, that was one of the first things that you brought up that we need to yeah. address. And we are going to do that in just a second when we come back from this break. So stay tuned. Hey, guys, it's Callie. I'm so excited to tell you about the FenFun Ultra Booster. It's honestly my favorite vibrator. It's quiet, it's small, and it's perfect for clit, vaginal, and anal play. It's sleek design makes it easy to hold. It also has 20 functions and the container doubles as a charging station. Ladies, the very best part is it's waterproof so you can play in the shower. It comes in four fun colors, pink, purple, blue, and black. It retails for $69.99 and is worth every penny. You can pick it up in any of our five store locations. Hope to see you soon. We got the All right, everybody, we are back, and this last segment is going to be on gender toxicity, something that Kamar has a lot to say about. When I first met him, when we were discussing different topics, this was one that he brought up, and he spoke about it quite in length, and it's very important for people to know about it, and uh, he'll tell you exactly why right now. So, Kamar, for those that don't know, what exactly is gender toxicity? All right, thank you. So yeah, gender toxicity, uh, and I came, uh, I kind of, I came upon that phrasing for the term, um, I, like towards the end of grad school, uh, when I did an internship um, at a psychologist's office. Uh, it was, you know, the late uh, Dr. Carl Clark, who's he had practiced psychology for a very long time. I think he was the first black uh, psych PhD uh, that graduated from the University of Alabama. So it was a great experience. And one of the things that he had under his belt was providing counseling for uh, domestic violence groups, 
of you know men who you know, they had they you know they went to court and you know they were assigned to to meet at, like this domestic violence sort of you know counseling sort of thing um with like a support group and i remember hearing these stories <laughs> like sitting in that just kind of amazed me uh, and there's i remember this one guy who talked about how he wound up you know in the group and it was very funny to hear the accounts because something is like you know hitting your spouse over the back with a chair in front of in front of your child but it was still sort of like reported they said instead of like i did like you know and and i think what registered for me is like you know when people talk about toxic masculinity although it's annoying buzzword that we hear all the time everywhere and because as human beings like linguistically we're we especially the united states we're we're, we're pretty dense you know <laughs> people will hear that and they interpret like well that that means that masculinity is toxic no that's not what it means you know toxic is the is the adjective masculinity is the subject um but uh the 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 real issue though and what I was kind of started to explore was like, how do we kind of take some of that, the the loadedness out of the term and really understand what's going on. And I, I, I came upon the phrasing of gender toxicity. Uh, and I think as in the previous segment, as I had said, when you look at the research of gender, gender is a creative expression um, and there's an ambiguity there, but it is performative. Um, and the thing is, when gender is overperformed, when your need of control or dominance as a male becomes a thing that damages other people, or your 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 need for control or dominance as a female starts to damage other people in your gender expression, then that would be considered toxic. Um, and there's a lot of people who will say, well, it doesn't exist, or it's only a male problem. Um, but, you know, when you look at even, you know, the female community, you have things like relational aggression, where people will try to damage the reputations of other women. And, and one of the things that's unique that also ties into the sexual ableism concept that I was talking about before, especially in female communities, you know, addressing gender toxicity with women is the sexual ableism on being able to bear children or not. Hmm. So there is a lot of sort of demeaning things that go on that women do to each other regarding women who do or don't have children or how many children do you have or how good of a mother are you yes and it's 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 pretty horrible it's equally as horrible as the 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 physical the physicality of of you know toxic masculinity the the emotional damages that come out of out of uh toxic femininity are equally horrible and worse mm -hmm. no not worse but sometimes they are <laughs> you know like we all have our psychological experiences with you know both sides of the coin. So when I came across that idea of gender toxicity and the universal quality of it, and even in, in some ways looking at the whole, looking at the entire gamut, you still have the idea of neuter and sometimes you know coming from the asexual community because sex is a characteristic that is innate uh, and gender also can apply to that. You can also have neutral or toxic neutrality in a way when it comes to gender and sexual expression because you know if you have a boy going through puberty we get boners we get hard-ons we get nocturnal emissions it's a natural thing mm -hmm. but if we're in a in a situation where you can't be sexual at all or if you have a woman who's going through her development and you know experiencing her needs um 
then even neutral can be a thing that can be very toxic for us all. Uh, mm. Essentially, toxicity is when you know you have too much of something and it becomes a, a damaging element. Right. Um, so my research, I was really lucky that I was still in grad school, uh, so I was able to do an extra paper, um, and then I presented that paper for uh, one of the uh, sociology uh, conferences that, that was on campus. And then one of my uh, mentors, uh, she invited me to the, there's a, a black studies conference that goes on in, uh, in Japan. Um, and it was held at, at Ritsume Khan uh, University in Kyoto. So I was able to, to present that paper in that abstract. Oh, wow. um, but that's very much become the heart of what my art studio focuses on is how can us as men look at our, our full gamut of masculine gender expression and find healthy creative ways to use that as outlet. Um, they're sensual, that are they're creative, that that are that are consensual. Um, and that's kind of what I've been transforming with my own personal studio and practice to focus on. Okay. Well to wrap this up, because I know you are a busy man and you have uh, things to attend to from the things we've talked about already, what would you say is the best way to combat some of these issues? I think one of the best ways to combat it, because, you know, communication is hard, but I, I really think people have to do their research. You have to do your reading, watch YouTube videos, you have to watch TED Talks. There's a lot of really great minds out there who are looking at these topics. And I, I, could, I could go down the list, uh, and it includes creative people as well. You have, you know, very advanced artists who, who dabble in sensuality, like uh, Bethany Vernon. She produces very high-end sexual objects, for like, you know, for, for people to experience, you know, positive pleasure where it's an investment in their sexuality and their, their gender expression. You have Justin LaMiller, uh, Joe Court. Uh, who are who are uh, who are therapists? They are they're licensed LMFTs, uh, and they they deal especially with with male topics. Um, there's 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 quite a few researchers who are out there. Dossie Easton is a great one who discusses a lot of things that have to do with um, polyamory uh, and non traditional you know relationships and things like that. And it's just a matter of you know downloading a. An, an ebook or listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video or a TED talk. And people can get more insight on how our gender expression and our and how our sexuality actually interact and what they really are, rather than walking around with implicit biases based off of assumptions or hearsay that we received from relatives or the church or the mosque or the synagogue and not based on reality and real people in real cases. Well, based on the last 45 minutes, all of you listening have heard the reason why I wanted to have this man on this podcast. There's so many things that he can offer to combat some of the issues we have regarding gender and sexuality. And just because this is the end of this podcast, he will be back, right? Yes, sir. Okay. I appreciate the opportunity you've provided me. This has been a, a great way to share and and I, I'd, I'd be happy to answer uh, any questions and, and just, you know, continue the conversation. Okay. If any of you have questions, uh, you can reach uh, Kamar through me for right now at pinthetailpublishing.com, and I can relate those questions to him. He will be back, and in the future, immediate future, we're going to have discussions regarding religion 
And we're going to continue to combat a lot of the societal ills that affect us and trying to get a new normative of acceptance and appreciation for everyone's gender and sexuality, as we try to do here on Taste of Forbidden Fruit. I Once again, I want to thank Kamar Bradford for joining us, and I look forward to interviewing you again very, very soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening. Like we do it, 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 like we do it